Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we find new ways of looking at the world. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm joined today by one of our newest faculty members, Troy Ouellette. Dr. Ouellette joined the Department of Visual Arts as an assistant professor in the spring of 2020, where he specializes in assemblage theory, technology, and conceptual art. From 1999 to 2006, he was the sculpture facilitator at the Banff Centre for the Arts in Banff, Alberta. He's taught undergraduate courses in design and sculpture at various universities and colleges in Southern Ontario, and his own work has been included in solo and group exhibitions in Canada, Australia, and the United States. Most recently, his work was included in the first virtual exhibition, Hiding in Plain Sight, at Embassy Cultural House in London, Ontario, and we've provided a link for you in the show notes. In addition to teaching with the Department of Visual Arts, Troy will also be teaching in Brock's new engineering program. So welcome. Hi, Alison. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you've had a bit of an interesting start here at Brock during during the <laughs> pandemic. Um, yes, I So I imagine you have been uh, doing lots of virtual meetings, getting to know people. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I love the podcast format, actually, right? Because it's sort of, you know, allows people to, to work on whatever they want to work on. They, they can go for a run, a jog, and they can listen to a podcast. It gets them away from the screen. So that's our hope. Yeah. That is certainly our, our hope. Yeah. So for those of us not familiar with the fine art world, can you tell us a little bit about what assemblage theory and conceptual art, what that means? Yeah, I mean, I guess they're, they're two separate things, of course. But um, it in 2007, uh, Manuel Del Landa, who's um, part of uh, like a, a Mexican extraction, he wrote a book called the, A New Philosophy of Society. Um, and it discusses the nuances of social and historical organizations and its complexities. And one thing I liked about that uh, process of, of trying to do that, at, attempting that at least, is that he came up with a number of different um, uh, sort of criteria, five criteria, let's say. I'm, I'm just going to go with the basics here. But basically, an assemblage or whatever must have kind of a, an expressivity. Um, so a material expressivity, you could think of flowers, for instance, having their particular spectrum of light that they reflect. This all relates back to the arts, right? Because not only of color, and it can be applied to other disciplines, assemblage theory. Uh, the second one would be coded relationships. Things have codes. Um, and so we could think of everything that exists in our imaginations usually has some kind of coded relationship, either through language or maybe even our own DNA and RNA. You know, we have to, uh, you know, it's coded um, or we have to communicate through, um, you know, an, an inherent set of instructions within our RNA that allow us and our beings to verbalize things and the way that our uh, larynx is structured, etc. These are all done through a system of codes, which we've discovered as DNA and RNA, so important to uh, even the, you know, past pan or the pandemic that's happened. Um, there's also a process of territorialization. These would be like entities within an assemblage. 
um, that have like uh, kind of uh, established a kind of a sovereignty or a territory. They stabilize their positions, right? And then what's called deterritorialization, at least with what Delanda says, and that's coming out of Deleuze's philosophy, it sort of destabilizes that environment. So we could think of decolonialization as a kind of um, destabilization of the kind of colonial projects that went on um, you know, in the, uh, since the 1500s, we we can think of also ma- uh, having material qualities. These things that are material that ha- play an important part in all living things or non-living things. Um, so, I what drew me to this, you know, was that I kind of came out of school um, through, uh, uh, you know, postmodernism and kind of you know a linguistic turn, and I wanted to think about how these other factors of ma- materials and um, um, codes and things like that were, you know, played out in the arts. And um, Delanda was a great person for me to research during my uh, dissertation research. And so I've continued looking at uh, his work um, and a kind of non-linguistic term, uh, which means that you're focusing on also things like the, the environment, etc. And um, it drew it. It's what still draws me to you know environmental architecture or environmental projects, and a lot of my work takes on some of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of I'm still very much intrigued by um, what Delanda's saying, and you know these this idea of that things are have a multiplicity or they're complex is has always been interesting to me because I think it showcases. Um, an idea of difference. If we think of difference in terms of, you know, intersectionality uh, within uh, people's, uh, what makes up uh, a person's identity, um, that's that can be sort of encapsulated a little bit in coded relationships and other things that Delanda's talking about. And, you know, he uses an example of kind of a, a walking animal form um, on a piece of solid ground with a surface to walk on. But there's obviously gravitational fields that are working on that entity there's um you know the uh kind of like a it has a given weight um it has a capacity to form uh, in this assemblage depending on emergent properties you could say that it, it's not reducible to any one thing like in terms of gravity or the animal type or species or whatever but it has effects and capacities and affordances that are kind of relational so these things act upon one another and they they inform how this entity is operating as a living being. But, you know, we could also say that about anything from crystals to, you know, anything in chemistry or physics or whatever. Um, so I like the way that it kind of traverses this kind of um, ground between disciplines. And I've always thought of myself as very multidisciplinary. So this fits right in with what I'm interested in researching. So I thought maybe um, you could tell us a little bit about the, about some of your works from the Embassy Cultural House exhibition. Um, and as I mentioned in our intro, we have a link there. So our listeners, if they have their hands free and it's safe, can uh, certainly take take a quick peek at that as we talk about some of the pieces. Um, your, your pieces there really seem to engage with themes of labor, data collections and politics. And um, I know you were telling me earlier 
specifically about your peace platform, which you created prior to the 2016 presidential election, which engages with that, uh, with, with the Republican Party platform. So what, what are you trying to do with that piece in particular and with these pieces in general? Yeah, I, I generally think of these things as kind of like, in a way, they're kind of one-offs, right? I mean, they're, you know, with the uh, 2016 presidential uh, Republican platform or, or the Republican platform in the U.S., um, it, it's almost as if no one read the, the platform became before, before uh, Trump came to power. Um, and, you know, for instance, in the in the platform itself, itself, it says right off the bat, you know, with this platform, we, the Republican Party, reaffirm the principles that unite us in common purpose. We believe in American exceptionalism. We believe in the United States of America is unlike any other nation on earth. And then it goes on to say, you know, we believe America is exceptional because of our historic role, first as refugee, then as defender, and now as exemplar of liberty in the world for the world to see kind of thing. And so what I did with this was I took a, a digital approach because I took the uh, entire platform and put it within a space, a kind of a, a rectangle space um, in text in four point type. <laughs> so you could barely see <laughs> the platform. You'd, ha- you'd have to look really closely at it. That's good eyesight. Um, oh yeah. Um, you'd almost need a magnifying glass, but I was interested very much in, you know, the kind of hypocrisy in a, in a way um, that this was exemplifying because you, as you know, you know, there's more mass killings in the U S uh, than anywhere on earth in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, their lack of gun control um, and, you know, the horrifying events with George Floyd and other things that have just been, um, you know, in the media more recently, but this kind of garden carnage of, you know, 300 people are shot. I think every day or something in the US. Um, and so this, uh, this kind of thing uh, just made me realize that, you know, with Trump and his memes coming out on Twitter and that not many people were actually paying attention to the very party that he was representing through their platform. And um, so for me, I had to take that on and, and just um, use, a, I think I used a, uh, a German font that was popular at the time of National Socialism mm. to have the text laid over top of a black ground. So when you approach the piece, you just see basically almost like a minimalist-like composition, a, a kind of a gray kind of veil on a black ground. But then as you get closer, you start realizing what you're reading. And so it's full of kind of xenophobic and kind of uh, verbiage that I thought was very binary and uh, disturbing. So so when you made that piece, like, did you have a specific goal in mind in terms of the person who would be looking at that piece? Like, did you want them to come away thinking about specific things or were you kind of open? You're just saying here, here it is. Now you figure it out. Well, it it sort of speaks for itself in a way. I mean, you know, as long as you can read uh, an English text, you know, you can understand what's going on in the text. You have, you're forced to look very carefully at it. And one of the things about assemblage, I think too, is, uh, you know, another proposition here that Delanda doesn't talk about maybe as much, but I, I mean, he does in terms of macro micro distinctions, he tries to get rid of those as distinctions. But this idea of like proximity, 
being close to something. You know, if you're in the United States and you're embedded within that context, you're you're going to be, you know, um, subject to it. I mean, I, I believe that there's a, a, a bill that went past called 1033. And, you know, it's, it's using uh, what that does is like use old military technologies and it sort of gives them to law enforcement agencies within the United States. And then they further patrol neighborhoods, usually, you know, African-American neighborhoods or like low income neighborhoods. So there's this other, there's this underlying um, kind of um, very dark side to uh, the military industrial complex and the way it's being used to control populations and, and against populations. So what, what do you see then as the relationship between art and politics? And are, are there particular trends or ideas that you've seen emerging in light of the Black Lives Matters movement, decolonization, these, these social justice movements that have been, have, have been gaining um, broader awareness again? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point to make. I'm certainly uh, because of social media, I'm sure is a major factor for uh, the ability to have, you know, recordings of these kind of wrongs that are being perpetrated. Um, I look back at this and I've got to say, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it, it really took off, especially with performance art in within conceptualism. Because so we were looking, you asked that question, you know, what do you think, you know, conceptual art is? Um and it's a great question because it it does have all these other permutations within conceptual art. I mean, I I look at it as like tropes of conceptual art, but I'm just foregrounding the idea of politics within conceptual art first. So conceptual art, if you if you know you'll you know many people think of it as ideas over you know making a process of making. Okay. Maybe um, so instead of painting, you know, you would have uh, usually it's li- linked to linguistics or or language somehow. And politics are a prominent theme in conceptual art. They always have been. Um, So you can think of that emphasis on language. There's an emphasis on some kind of a system or possibly mathematics. That could be one branch of conceptual art. A kind of feigned objectivity. I don't really think conceptual arts artists think of themselves as like objective, but they can, they can sort of like mimic a kind of objectivity. Um, I think there's a predominance of photography because photography is kind of like a mirror, you know, digital photography is quite different now though. Right. I mean, it's, it's quite manipulated, but analog photography as it existed in the sixties and seventies certainly, um, would have been, you know, a mirror to a, um, an instant unless it was, you know, staged or whatever we could think of, um, you know, Jeff Wall or someone in Canada looking at uh, that kind of work and conceptualism, maybe West Coast conceptualism. But I think another one is a kind of clear, clean and austere, um, this kind of mimicry of modernism and streamlining. And then there's maybe a little bit of humor and absurdity in it as well. Um, and here's a good example of, you know, political um, piece, right? Uh, Louise Lawler did a police piece called Bird Calls. <laughs> and Bird Calls, 1971, right? Louise sees that, you know, there's these exhibitions of all male artists. And, you know, so she proceeds at the MoMA to use these bird calls and call out the names of, you know, Vito Acconci, Carl Andre, Donald Judd, you know, whoever else is in the show. And it's a hilarious piece, but it's also drawing attention to the fact that there were not many women having exhibitions, especially in major um, centers, New York, Los Angeles, and in major galleries. Um, so she saw that as a kind of, uh, you know, a, a void that um, where it needed to be commented on. And, you know, as so many women of that era did within uh, performance art, 
you know, we could think of Adrian Piper, you know, who draws attention, um, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like gender, uh, you could think of Yoko Ono's cut piece. I mean, there's all of these great works that are coming out and they're risky, you know, they're, uh, they're, these performative works are often very risky. So there's an element of risk involved. I would say conceptualism started maybe with, with, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and it, and it also involved a kind of institutional critique and it has a connection with minimalism. So there's many different permutations, you know, it's even called various things like Gutai and Fluxus and Neodata and photo conceptualism and land art. I mean, there's, you know, you can, you can keep going, but. Oh, I remember doing a project on Dadaism in, uh, in high school, oh, yeah. being utterly fascinated with, uh, with, with the absurdity of yeah. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know how much of it I would remember now, but, uh, but yeah, the, um, calling attention to things in, in, um, interesting ways um, that maybe don't always seem um, intuitive, I guess, on, on the first, at the first glance. You kind of have to dig a little bit to, to understand them sometimes. You, you yeah. do. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, that that's a challenge for people engaging with, with, with conceptual art? Like, do, uh, do people from outside of the artistic area, new, newcomers to, to the field, um, what, what can they expect to experience when, if they're trying to engage with, with a conceptual art piece? <laughs> well, it's really <laughs> tough, right? In a lot of instances, you know, like Robert Barry would um, maybe have like a ra radio signal that would be in, the ga in a gallery situation. And unless you were able to tune into the frequency, you would hear nothing, right? Okay. Like uh, as, a, as a human, you wouldn't be able to perceive it. But what I think it draws attention to is um, some of the things that are hidden and are invisible. Like that, you know, the title of that very show that I was in London, like hiding in plain sight. Sometimes things can be right in front of you and you don't even know that they're there. You're not aware that they're there. Um, we could think of this in terms of the way, you know, um, stereotypes are, are, uh, you know, out there and, um, pervade our consciousness. And we, we maybe ascribe something to somebody knowing nothing about them, right. Uh, knowing nothing about, uh, where they're from or, and, um, at least in Canada, like, see, I was, I thought that that Republican platform was kind of an affront in a way. Um, and, uh, to my kind of Canadian sensibilities. I don't even know if it's national, it's just my own sensibilities. And so that idea of invisible forces playing out um, and influencing things is I think something that conceptualism um, in all its iterations, uh, you know, provides us with a kind of an insight, things that we didn't think of before. And they allow us, I think, to decide more as uh, people experiencing these things than something that would generally direct our attention to any to something that's more, a little more specific. Mm. Um, so this sort of generalization of, of thought and this free thinking um, arena that people are engaged in once they've engage with these pieces is something very powerful for me. You have a couple of pieces in that hiding in plain sight that, that also deal with the idea of consumption and garbage um, and, and that kind of thing, which again, something yeah. that we're busy when we're busy consuming, we're not always thinking about where's, where is this going to end up or what garbage has been produced in the process of this, of this thing. Um, did you want to tell us a little bit about those pieces? I know you've got the um, uh, the politics of trade and trash, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. The detritoscope. <laughs> yeah, the tritoscope. Yeah, the, the tritoscope. 
Um, yeah, uh, both of those pieces use kind of, you know, post-consumer waste. And uh, it all was brought about by a project that I did in Windsor. It was the, um, the biggest um, trading um, nexus for trade between the United States and Canada, that border crossing. Um, and so garbage would just litter the Huron Church roadway. Um, and so I proceeded to do a performance where I kind of dressed up in this uh, white uniform and I went out and I picked up all this garbage. And then I tried to trace it um, through the politics of trade and trash. I chronicled everything. I tried to trace it, map it, um, and thereby showing the complexities of, of trade in a way because the trade extended you know, to some parts in Europe. They extended all the way through the southern United States. So the bringing of material objects from one place to another was exemplified by this one project. After I collected all that data, I had this little data screen that would just like scroll with all of these different items and the best description that I could give these items. Um, there was a McDonald's located on here in Church Road, right at the border as well, which was kind of heavily militarized right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So the um, the garbage took on, you know, this uh, iteration of this large map of North America, where most of the trade was taking place in terms of how it was being traded and transported. And um, and then just, just Tritoscope came out of um, my research into um, medicine and uh, how much waste was being generated through uh, trying to keep us healthy, mm. <laughs> which ironically, you know, yeah, makes other people unhealthy. <laughs> I was just going to say, you could probably update that with all of the waste that's being generated now with our disinfecting wipes and yeah. with our single use masks and the right. gloves and yeah. the gowns and finding that that keeping us safe, but then we're, there's also yeah, that other, yeah. the, the destruction side of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like for distri- to try to scope, I just went country by country and, and looked at how much waste was generated. And, um, a lot of the, uh, the Basel convention was supposed to take care of, you know, um, the, the trading in waste. So if one country got rid of their waste, another country might buy it or whatever that happens all the time right i mean we get waste from the united states goes up to a landfill here in canada or toronto's waste goes down to you know south south of london so you're so trading and waste happens all the time um and uh sometimes it even happens you know in these kind of like very dark undercurrents uh, of marketplaces that will buy and trade and sell those things um so, uh, detritoscope was just an inverted, like it was a speaker, um, that was hung onto a, um, what looked like a stethoscope kind of, right. Um, and then it just verbally just set out co- the numbers for each country, uh, that was, uh, that had traded. Yeah. So how did you get interested in the environment? That's come up in a few of the things that you've, that you've mentioned, um, how, how did you get interested in, in exploring the environment through art? Um, I think it was actually maybe my mom had an influence, actually, because, you know, she was kind of an inst- a staunch environmentalist. And so growing up, you know, in that household where, you know, I, I was looking at, um, you know, biology and species of animals and, um, you know, those are mostly my mom's interest. And um, so... I came to it eventually like doing these community projects, these community-based projects. And uh, one was where I I built a greenhouse in my backyard. And this is well before, you know, 
uh, you know, marijuana and stuff was more legalized. So I <laughs> had neighbors looking at this greenhouse. What's this guy doing? You know, um, so um, anyway. <laughs> I was, but all I was doing was so innocent. I was just growing these tomato plants and then gifting them to the my neighbors. It was kind of funny. Um, and so, yeah, it was this wacky project, but it but it did produce a lot of uh, of these heritage tomato plants that I then just gifted. And um, I did mm -hmm. another project like that uh, down in the Windsor area that had to do with hidden labor um, and and gardening and people beautifying their uh, their own yards and growing food and things like that. And uh, it was a process where one would come into the gallery, see these little seed packets on the wall and this big map, and they would place a pin where they were going to, you know, grab the seeds and then plant, plant the plants. So the city was kind of in a way my canvas, right? And, uh, by gifting these seeds, they were obliged to donate some money and then the money went to the a local food bank. Um, so it tried to, it tried to have this kind of healing, uh, it was kind of like a healing process, uh, for the city and to engage with this notion of like hidden labor, which is a great show at, at uh, art site in Windsor. So you had residents, visitors to the exhibition then become artists as well, in a way, as they, as they finished your work for you or helped, helped finish it anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, gardening is, is one of those, um, hobbies that has, or interests, um, that has really taken off since, since the pandemic. So, um, if any of our listeners are involved in any gardening related artworks, get in touch because I, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. Now sounds like a good time to, uh, a good time to be doing that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So I also, I also wanted to ask about your, um, interest in the Bauhaus movement. Um, you've done your, your PhD dissertation on that. Um, and the Bauhaus Art School became famous for its approach to design in the 1920s Germany. And then later, um, many, most perhaps, of the um, artists and architects in that school moved to the U.S. and we're based out of Chicago, if my research is correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm always a little nervous <laughs> sharing my research with the expert. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about this movement sure. and, and what attracted you to some of these principles and if some of, and if some of their principles um, come through in some of the work that you do now? Oh, it does for sure. I mean, uh, one of the things about the Bauhaus was that it started in 1919 and it was in, a, um, uh, in Weimar, Germany, which is a very conservative place um all of a sudden you had the, this kind of bohemian school you know with like rebel artists or whatever that were invading the town and um and so it rattled a lot of cages in terms of the you know administrations in, within the city um but what they did start was a course that involved um everything from like metalwork uh to textiles to painting and the Bauhaus continues to fascinate a lot of people because um, what, what they're trying to do now is also look at the, the students. Where did the students go? Um, not just the instructors. We know where the instructors went. Um, and and Mahali Naj and Jorge Kepesh, that was part of those inner circles of the Bauhaus, they went and founded uh, the new Bauhaus in Chicago. But when the preliminary course was developed in 1919, as early as that, they were already looking at um, these kind of foundational courses which basically became a model for almost every art school since, you know, um, 
And so that's how it's important. Um, it involved like Gropius who started at Walter Gropius, you know, was an architect. Um, and then it went on to Hannes Meyer and, and uh, Mies van der Rohe. So there were other people involved as the director. Uh, but um, it's, it's come under a lot of criticism lately, mainly because, you know, there, there isn't that investigation of where the students went. Um, and there was heavy criticism for the way women were treated at the time because the, they weren't involved in things like they were sort of encouraged to go into textiles, right, instead of like painting. Um, so there was this real division between craft, mm-hmm. I think, and art that still existed, like high art that existed. Um, and so that's something that now is being pinpointed as, you know, tr- where we're trying to um, get at these kind of hidden histories um, and look at the more intricate kind of nature of how the Bauhaus operated. And because uh, it recently celebrated 100 years and it's been around for a long time. Uh, we And so, you know, it's fascinating to me because I was more in- interested in it as an institution. How did it operate as an institution? And in those initial years of 1919 up to about 1923, 24, before it moved to the is its uh, main school headquarters, which was in Dessau, mm-hmm. it uh, it was on the verge of collapse almost every year. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. This the stereotype of the uh, artistic institution struggling. Yeah, yeah. Even the Bauhaus, right? And uh, it struggled for a long time to find a city to kind of settle down into. And then when it finally did, of course, the Nazis came to power and they closed the school. I think it was 1933. So uh, it's a tragic story because, you know, had it been left as a school that was like a free thinking school, it kind of had socialist uh, overtones to it. Um, it, you know, it would have probably revolutionized for its time, like architecture, uh, metalwork, you know. Um, so um, it came out of other movements, but uh, it it was a, a pretty astounding place, I think. Yeah. And even some of the everyday objects, um, like our students are familiar with modular stacking chairs and those kinds of things, just very, yes, like things, again, hidden in plain sight, things that uh, that are there that we don't necessarily think about as sure. art yeah. or, or design work. Um, right. We'll put some links yeah, in the exactly. show notes um, as well for those who are interested in learning a little bit more about that. So you were interested in it as as an institutional um, facility. So have have some of those ideas seeped into your own teaching then? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I can't ignore, you know, the fact that they... Um, the Bauhaus, you know, uh, really looked at things like performance, theater, um, you know, it was just so radical and so multidisciplinary that, um, you know, for me, at least, uh, I have to acknowledge where these traditions come from. You know, if it's performance art, for instance, I mean, it's coming out of, you know, these kind of avant-garde theater works or um, it's kind of it's coming out of guerrilla theater or, you know, and um, I find that all fascinating, the way that those lineages kind of can get pieced together. So the histories become an integral part of anything that I teach ever in any course that I teach. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with a lot of other topics now. We're dealing with, you know, truth value within images. We're dealing with, you know, uh, the politics of the day. We're dealing with, you know, things that are well beyond the Bauhaus that had to do with, uh, you know, electronic arts, new media. Um, you can also think of like disability arts. Um, and so for those things, you know, I, I 
want to show the lineage, but also what the Bauhaus was not. And one, one of the things that it was not, um, even in, in 1933 when it closed, it wasn't looking at electronics at all. Um, there was no department that was looking at a lot electronics, although Mahali Naj, who was, who was looking at new materials, and new processes, you know, was very innovative. Um, he was looking at more like motorized, you know, sculptures and things like that. But electronics didn't really come about until you started looking at, you know, C- Center for Advanced Visual Studies at MIT. Um, the new Bauhaus wasn't even engaged in looking at electronics. And then there was a major exhibition in the 70s called Software uh, through uh, Jack Burnham. Um, and that was at the Jewish Museum in New York City. Um, and it involved, um, I think, an emphasis on software and systems that would come to actually dominate our lives in a lot of ways. You know, So I thought it was not only prophetic, um, but it was visionary in the way that um, those projects were uh, came about in that gallery for that time, very early on. Well before Lev Manovich, you know, um, was writing his book called uh, Software Takes uh, a Command, I think it's called, it's on my bookshelf somewhere. Um, but it's in 19, you know, uh, 2013, mm-hmm. that text, you know. So you mentioned disability art, and I know that you're doing some work around ideas of disability and art um, with disabled performance artists. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm just sort of, you know, one cog in that machine. Uh, the major people are uh, Janelle Rose and uh, Gaytree Persaud and Rod Strickland and Adi Hollander. There's a whole slew of people. But it basically came about through uh, David Bobier's initiative, who started a Vibrafusion Lab uh, in London, Ontario. Um, and he's one of the prime, I think, movers of, you know, getting this on the radar of, you know, the Canada Council and Ontario Arts Council um, and just getting it out there um, in terms of something that should be considered within the arts and uh i know that you know even with the podcast like if it's you know you want to communicate to other people that maybe have hearing disabilities or whatever you have to make available some kind of a transcript or whatever um i think the advantage that we have in terms of the ability to use new media is astounding in that way um and so the project that I'm working on is one where I'm building this little spectrum analyzer for sound that a dancer could wear on their sleeve. And as the music plays, it's either picked up through a mic or sent to the unit through a radio signal. And then the frequencies of, of the sound get transmitted and transferred into light pulses. And then the dancer is able to not only maybe feel a vibration through uh, these little transducers, which is something that you know, Jim uh, and other people in the collective right now are, are looking at, but they, they can also just look at the light patterns and then uh, use that to uh, uh, do some of their cho- choreographic work. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, I, I think it's a three-year project. Um, David's like really active uh, in that field. So, yeah. We'll keep us posted on it because it does sound really, really interesting. And we're always, um, I'm, I certainly am always um, eager to hear about how folks are highlighting diverse communities in, 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 in their disciplines and especially those communities that maybe have been overlooked in the past. For sure. So in terms of your teaching at Brock, um, what kinds of courses, I know, I know you're still kind of um, settling in a little bit. Um, but what kinds of courses are you teaching and what kinds of courses will you be teaching or, or, or are you hoping to teach at some point? Well, as you know, like Brock's starting up uh, a new engineering program. Um, and so 
the engineering program actually seems quite diverse and multidisciplinary um, uh, through a university. You know, there are other colleges and universities around the country that focus in on uh, one type of engineering. So even that term is a very loaded uh, term because it's not expressing any one real discipline. It's, uh, you know, you could think of electrical engineering, or you could think of chemical engineering, biological engineering, um, you know, structural, civil, you know, uh, you get the picture, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of different types of, uh, investigations. Uh, so I've been drawn to that and, and drawn into that because of my interest, I think in, uh, art technology, art techno science collaborations. Um, and this goes as far back as maybe looking at, uh, experiments in art and technology, um, and, uh, experiments in art and technology is interesting because for the first time in the United States, at least from in the nine evenings in that sort of era was about 1966, but you had engineers from Bell Laboratory work with people in the arts like Robert Rauschenberg or Lucinda Childs or, you know, Alex and Deborah Hay. Um, and it was uh, it was nine evenings where uh, theater and electronics and electrical engineers were working together to facilitate a, a nine e- evenings of performances. Um, and Eats always captured my attention. And so when I when I look at that, I look at also um, you know architectural structures that are uh, more innovative. Um, I look at uh, how the arts have informed how um, architecture can operate and work. There were also like MIT's architectural machine group that came out in the 60s. So again, my interest in the 60s doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't um, just stand still, at, you know, at just looking at the histories, but seeing ways to integrate what's gone on in the past with the things that are happening today. Like, uh, so I'll be teaching things like... Uh, you know, uh, First Nations design and indigeneity within environmental projects. Uh, I'll be looking at metamaterials and AI and virtual reality. How how will that function within future structures and design? Um, You know, I'll be looking at at landscape uh, uh, work as well through uh, Cornelia Hahn Oberlander. Um, I'll be looking at utopias and grand projects. So even unrealized projects, but then relating it back to the place where I exist, which, you know, is St. Catherine's. Um, So I wanted to have the students, uh, I will have the students actually develop models uh, to rework the Welland Canal and reimagine it. as a kind of a hypothetical uh, project that they can work on uh, within groups to maybe figure out, okay, how would you design a new bridge? Maybe how would you make uh, the canal area more pedestrian friendly? How, how would you um, allow maybe for food production on the banks or how would the entertainment and, you know, how could you revitalize that area? So I want the projects to be, yes, hypothetical, but at the same time um, p- possible. So I would be remiss as a podcaster if I did not ask you to plug your podcast that you are working on, Um, (laughs) because that's the number one rule of podcasting is to get people on to plug their podcast. Um, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So you have been working on a project. um, I believe it's just a handful of episodes. It's not 
yeah, yeah, really extensive. Yeah, I think there's many multi episode. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be about six of them, um, and it's called Media Art Other. They're just ten minute podcasts. I wanted them to be kept fairly short. Um, they're podcasts during the pandemic, and they're very much about that kind of like being able to tune in um, just briefly and then you know do do something else. But um, I'm, I'm hoping to have it uh, out by the fall when there's a little bit more of a listener base and um, I can I have a little bit of post-production work to do. Um, but anybody who is interested in media arts that, uh, you know, kind of interrogates uh, race, class, indigeneity, disability arts and post-colonialism, those sorts of things, they can tune in. Um, they'll also tackle all kinds of different subjects uh, like mental health and politics, identity politics, those sorts of things. Um, but one of the people that actually is sending me a podcast today uh, is David Bobier. So um, the person that is involved in disability arts, um, he specializes that and he'll be in that mix as well as uh, Dr. Karina Gajnavi, an independent curator that looks at uh, um, animality and kind of like animals. Um, then there's Evan Curtis Norcross, who's a sound artist that's done recordings all over the world. Um, Dr. Sarah Cook, who's a curator out of the UK. Uh, Candace Hopkins, First Nations curator. And uh, Raven Chacon, who's a um, sound and installation artist from a Navajo uh, band. So I, I'm ho hoping to get all these produced and out there and uh, <laughs> have people listening. <laughs> takes a bit of time we know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um so are these are these kind of like in an, an, a q a interview format or is it um more of a just an extended um monologue yeah. i guess for lack of a better word yeah in a way it is the monologue uh, format so um i've sent them just a number of questions or asked them to talk about a specific topic uh, to fit within that 10 minute time frame um i don't know how fast they're going to talk maybe they're just gonna <laughs> like it'll be you know imperceptible almost probably um but yeah uh we'll see what happens and uh but the ones that have come in so far are extraordinary um and interesting um and i've let them have a kind of creative freedom so that, uh, you know, the listener, uh, can get information within that 10 minutes and then look at some other, other work, uh, on their own, et cetera. That is fantastic. Um, certainly keep us posted on how that project goes and we will plug it on our social media, which is at Brock Humanities on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Awesome. Um, so if our listeners are interested in, um, in catching that, um, we'll, we'll help you get the word out for that because yeah, it does you. sound very interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for joining us today. And thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us as well. If you're enjoying the podcast, we hope you will subscribe if you haven't already. And stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us that coveted five-star rating. It will make us make us so happy. Um, and it will help other folks find our podcast as well. Um, you can also let us know what you think through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as I said, at Brock Humanities, pretty easy to find. And we've got links in the show notes as usual. So join us again next week for another interesting conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rockview.ca forward slash humanities. 
We love to hear from our listeners. So please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.